Welcome to Crashing the War Party. My name is Kelly Blahos, here with my co-host Daniel Arison, your tour guides essentially through the swampy foreign policy of Washington, pointing out all the creatures and their habitats in hopes that one day, if we are disruptive enough, we can send this ecosystem into extinction. In the first half of the show, we'll be talking to Sebastian Strangio of The Diplomat about his work on Southeast Asia and its role in both U.S., anti-China policy, and in the greater Asian response to the Ukraine war. But first, we fly to Kyiv, where the New York Times reported this week that the CIA has been operating in the capital city for some time, providing intelligence and targeting information to the Ukrainian military. The American presence is part of what the paper called a stealthy network of European commandos and intelligence operatives who are working inside the country and just outside of the country and bases in France and Germany. As I said in a recent piece I wrote for Responsible Statecraft on the news, this is Biden getting to have it both ways. While there are technically no U.S. soldiers, no boots on the ground in Ukraine, the United States is physically assisting the war in Russia, or against Russia rather. Not only are we providing the increasingly sophisticated weapons, we are helping train their military outside the country, while our European military friends are assisting on the inside of Ukraine. We are providing important tactical aid, which includes satellite intelligence for targeting and other important strategic communications. If there was any question of whether we were, quote, in this war, whether by proxy or otherwise, that appears to be laid to rest with this new report. So what does this mean, Dan? To me, I'm afraid this is one more escalatory step to a direct confrontation with Putin. On the other hand, I'm a bit annoyed that all of this is being done without a congressional declaration of war. Are we not engaging directly in hostilities here? Some would go as far as to say co-belligerency. If our CIA is helping Ukrainians bomb Russian targets or pick off generals? Well, I, I mean, I think if, I mean, to the extent that it is a proxy war, and, and I think we were seeing how much of a proxy war it is, uh, it's, I think it's important in terms of our liability or our risk that it it always stays just just as a proxy war it doesn't go any further uh, one of the things that I that was sort of encouraging in the New York Times report that you cited in your piece is that there there aren't US trainers uh, inside Ukraine uh, doing the things that some of the other uh, allies are doing and so that was I mean it's it's not uh, maybe ideal but it's it's the it's better that they're not there uh, than, than if they are. And and so I think in terms of having the, the intelligence operatives there feeding intelligence, that's, I mean, that does involve us in the conflict in one sense, but it, it doesn't expose us to the same kinds of liabilities that actually having people on the ground in combat would, would entail. Uh, I mean, the, the, the question of hostilities is, is an important one because if, troops are being put into a position where hostilities can be expected, uh, then that is something that Congress has to authorize. The president doesn't get to do that just uh, just on his own say-so. And so one of the reasons in the, in the Yemen debate, one of the things that people uh, against the war kept insisting is that we were uh, facilitating the movement of Saudi and, and uh, Emirati troops uh, especially when we were refueling their jets. And so in that respect, we were actually directly participating in a way that I I don't know that we really are in Ukraine. 
uh, so that th there's a, a war powers challenge for what we did in Yemen and what we have been doing in Yemen. Uh, but with with Ukraine, I'm not sure that you can make quite the same argument. What do you um, think is the difference? I, I think, well, the, the main difference is if you're providing weapons to a government, but you're not actually facilitating their use, uh, or you know, you're not you're not actually providing direct support to the belligerent governments as they're carrying out operations, except for the targeting. We yeah, well, I mean, intelligence assistance, but intelligence assistance doesn't introduce our troops into hostilities, whereas we have we have we still have to this day troops in Saudi Arabia providing them with defense against Houthi attacks. We have special forces, I think, still helping them to guard their border. Uh, and so it's, a, I think that they are, they are distinct in that way. Uh, where where we, we've, at least as far as we know, we have kept U.S. troops out of Ukraine and therefore out of hostilities. And so I'm, and I hope it stays that way because I, I saw uh, there, there's, a, there's been a push for the last four months, uh, especially from the, you know, the most hardline elements, to try to erase any distinction between Ukraine fighting the war uh, and our direct involvement in it, and and Max Boot was going on about how that you know basically there's no difference between Ukraine's war and ours, uh, so that as a way of trying to sell the U.S. on throwing lots more weapons into the mix uh, of all kinds, including uh, armor and planes and, and and you name it. I mean, I think. Vladek uh, Sikorsky is even going out on the, 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 into the crazy realm of saying that we ought to be giving Ukraine nukes uh, because that will somehow deter the Russians. When you know, one of the, the propaganda talking points that the Russians used was that they were worried that Ukraine might obtain nukes, which of course was nonsense. But, but if you actually gave Ukraine nukes, you're validating Russian propaganda. So the, I mean, there's this, this push to, to try to erase the distinction between a Ukrainian war and an all-West versus Russia war. And, and obviously, we're the losers if that distinction gets erased. So I, I, I want to try to hold the line and say that if, if we're stuck with this proxy war, we, you know, we have to at least make the best of it and not let it get out of control. Yeah, I agree. I guess I, I, I see the, the, the glass may be half full in that I'm seeing these CIA operatives. And, you know, obviously we don't have uh, all the details on what these CIA operatives are doing other than what the New York Times is reporting. Um, but I'm thinking, you know, the CIA is not the CIA. Well, the CIA has always been engaged in nefarious activities uh, since its inception. But particularly after 9-11, they've become more militarized in that they've become more operational, uh, engaged in manhunting and drone strikes and uh, sending out commando units who are working with, in some cases, defense contractors like Blackwater uh, to go and engage in that manhunting. And so I feel like it's almost like a sliver of light between having military boots on the ground, special forces and CIA. Now, I, and that's all speculative, but I also fear a slippery slope, uh, much like the, the Vietnam advisors in 1964 that, um, that did turn into more of a 
um, a, a widespread military, U.S. military operation after 1965. All it took was the, the Gulf of Tonkin incident. Um, so we have these CIA operatives there. They're providing all sorts of intelligence and targeting information. We are, we are to the Ukrainian military. We know that we are training the Ukrainians on all of the weapons that we are giving them. We're showing them how to use them. We can't, we are not doing that inside the country as far as we know, but just outside the country in France and Germany. And then our European partners, our NATO allies, who we work with as an alliance, are in the country training. We have commandos. So again, another sliver of light between, you know, having boots on the ground and not having boots on the ground. Um, so I'm more or less concerned that that's sort of going to be a slippery slope to full to, to the max boots of the of the world getting their way and getting troops. And all it takes is some incident where a CIA officer is killed or a European commando is killed and um, all bets are off. You know, I, I'm, I'm happy that um, so far it, it doesn't seem that Putin has reacted to all of these little escalatory steps that we've talked about on the show whether it be the more sophisticated weapons and now these reports of CIA in, um, you know, he's probably smart and then he's not reacting to this. But, you know, at, at some level, I feel like Congress should start maybe debating this in, in terms of, of this proxy war. We know that proxy wars in the, in the past have resulted in much death, death and destruction, you know, whether it be in Nicaragua or El Salvador Afghanistan in the early 80s, and they tend to have this domino effect of creating other conflicts um, or long-term protracted situations. So I, I, I hope to God that perhaps, a, you know, that at some point members of Congress will say, hey, wait, 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 we didn't sign on for this. I mean, I know that's probably wishful thinking, but, you know, uh, right now it does seem like uh, the Biden administration has a, a blank check on the money and the operations. Well, and I, I think one of the things that Congress should be doing is is keeping track or, or keeping better track and insisting that the Pentagon keep better track of where these weapons are ending up, who's using them, uh, what what becomes of them, uh, how many are getting lost, how many are getting stolen, if any are being stolen. Uh, because we, we know with other partner governments, uh, when we provide weapons to them un, under uh, a contract or under an agreement, uh, sometimes they will pass those on to third parties in violation of those agreements. Uh, we, we know the Saudis have done that and the UAE have done that uh, in Yemen. And so that that's something that needs to be uh, washed out for. I, I don't know that the Ukrainian government would be would be doing that, but it's something that that Congress has a responsibility to keep track of. And, uh, and I'm, I'm yeah, as, as, as you say, it's it's probably too much to hope for with this bunch, but uh, I, I hope that they are, looking more carefully into that, especially as we're, we're funneling more and more military assistance to Ukraine. Yeah. And, you know, I probably mentioned this before, but, you know, when Congress approved that huge $40 billion package of, of, of weapons and other aid assistance to Ukraine, it really was handing a, a pot over to the White House. And so when we've been hearing about weapons uh, being sent over in the, say, the last three weeks, whether it be the, the new tranche of, of HIMARS, the, the rocket uh, the missile systems, or the Harpoon anti-ship missiles, 
the the new uh, tranche of of ammunition, all that is being is drawing down on that uh, initial forty billion dollars. And Congress does not necessarily get a say if Biden comes forward and says, "I want to give new rocket systems that have the capability of." Um, shooting missiles that are 150 miles, nautical miles or whatever, um, compared to the 40, I think that the current system that we gave them had the capability of doing. Congress doesn't have the ability at this point to say, whoa, 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 we didn't want to send long range missiles. So because the, the streams that they're tapping aren't necessarily ones in which Congress is required to weigh in. The only one is if we sell them missiles through the military financing program or military sales, uh, military sales, and that would require a review of Congress. And then somebody like Rand Paul, for example, could, you know, introduce a resolution trying to block it. And I understand that there's some talk about armed drones going to Ukraine, which would be our predator drones, our most sophisticated weapons, um, unmanned systems, you know, that would be in the form of a sale. Maybe we can block that, but not everything that's going over there. So um, Congress sort of abdicated a lot of its uh, oversight. Well, definitely. And and when we're talking about abdication, another thing that's been concerning is the extent to which the administration is essentially taking a hands-off approach in terms of deciding how how much is enough, and and where the war ought to to where they you know how you terminate this war in a responsible way, because uh, many of the reports about military assistance going to Ukraine have noted that the Ukrainian government's position on when the war should end has hardened considerably, and and on one level that's understandable. Of course, they've been attacked; they're suffering serious atrocities. Uh, that that horrible attack on the shopping center just this week. Uh, is is one of many uh, war crimes that they have had to endure, and so it, it's it's understandable that attitudes are hardening. But when they're setting goals like retaking Crimea, which is I, I think everybody that's thought about it carefully realizes that's a pie in the sky goal, given Ukrainian resources. Uh, to to encourage them to pursue that goal and to keep the war going until that is reached, is is a recipe. I think for for wrecking Ukraine and, and and eventually breaking their forces, and that's obviously something we don't want to encourage. Uh, that that can't be considered a, a positive or desirable outcome for this effort. So we we have to I think calibrate the amount of assistance uh, to to what it is we actually think we can achieve realistically without dragging this war on for years and years. And so that's. Um, that's what I hope we see from the administration is more care given to that problem. Our guest today is Sebastian Strangio. He's been a reporter for the Phnom Penh Post. He's currently the Southeast Asia editor at The Diplomat and his work has appeared in Foreign Affairs, The New York Times, and the Los Angeles Review of Books, among others. He is the author of Cambodia, From Pol Pot to Hun Sen and Beyond, and In the Dragon's Shadow, Southeast Asia in the Chinese Century. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. 
I, we, yeah, we appreciate you coming on and uh, thank you for joining us uh, all the way from Australia. Uh, we, we don't usually have guests uh, from so far afield, but we, we appreciate you making the time. Uh, uh, in your book on Southeast Asia and China and the Dragon Shadow, you discuss some of the mistakes that the U.S. has made in its approach to the region. Uh, you write that official American rhetoric positing a zero-sum struggle between free and repressive visions of world order or describing the CCP as a central threat of our times implied an invidious choice, something that the region has always been determined to avoid. By presenting regional states with such a choice, does the U.S. risk driving them to seek closer ties with China uh, at our expense? Well, <clears throat> I mean, the subject of my critique is really this framing of democracy versus autocracy, which we've really seen become mm -hmm. more dominant since the Russian invasion of Ukraine. It sort of reinforced mm -hmm. this, this um, idea, which has been swirling around now for probably since the beginning of the Trump administration. That, that was when it really seemed to crystallize. Um, and, you know, and the point that I tried to make in the book is that in Southeast Asia, this sort of universalism doesn't go down very well. I mean, partly it's a matter of, you know, I think Southeast Asian governments see the United States and the role of the United States in the world in much more ambiguous and ambivalent terms. I mean, I think there's a great desire for the United States to remain strongly engaged in the region as a security counterweight to China and also for trade and investment, which the region is um, always very interested in. Um, but, you know, the, I think that the, you know, leaders in the region do not idealize the United States in the same way that American leaders tend to do. Um, and so, you know, basically the idea of American exceptionalism goes down, um, you know, doesn't, it doesn't find receptive ears in the region. Um, and so painting, you know, one of the problems in Southeast Asia is that there's few nations that you can point to that are actually consolidated liberal democracies. I mean, you've got countries like the Philippines and Indonesia, which are very successful electoral democracies, but with a lot of flaws, um, and, you know, a lot of corruption and, and a creeping sort of authoritarianism in the case of Duterte's regime in the Philippines. And also under President Joko Widodo in Indonesia, there's been a, you know, an erosion of liberal norms over the past few years, um, uh, you, know, and a, you know, a creeping sort of, um, uh, yeah, sort of conservatism, I suppose. And, and there's even talk of extending, his, uh, extending him beyond the two-term limit so he can run for a third term. Um, uh, so, you know, to talk about a region divided between democracies and autocracies poses a lot of, you know, um, it either puts countries in a very difficult position, forces them to choose, or it's simply just contradictory. You have countries like Vietnam, which is an increasingly close uh, um, uh, partner of the United States. And of course, Vietnam is, you know, has, has, a, has a political system which very closely mirrors that of, of communist ruled China. So, you know, it throws up a host of challenges. Um, but I think it's sort of, you know, it, one of the problems in the region is that, you know, this sort of moralism doesn't tend to, you know, it tends to drive leaders away. And the Chinese are always ready to engage on, on a sort of basic, basic pragmatic level. They do business, you know, they don't really judge what type of regime a particular country has at a particular time. And they really present themselves as partners for the long term rather than this sort of fickle shifting and lecturing and, and, and you know, which, which is the way that the United States is seen in many parts of Southeast Asia. And of course, Cambodia is probably the cardinal example, and I'm sure we'll get to that um, shortly. Right. Well, and in general, the U.S. has uh, tended to neglect Southeast Asia, especially since the end of the Cold War. Uh, of course, a lot of our involvement in Southeast Asia was very uh, destructive and, and uh, malign uh, for many countries in the region there. Uh, but then since since the end of the Cold War, 
uh, it's it's been a case of, of paying very little attention to them, uh, doing maybe the bare minimum. Uh, as, as you say in the book, Southeast Asia remained a blind spot on its radar, meaning the U.S. government. Uh, now it's playing uh, catch-up. Uh, so what, what do you think accounts for that lack of attention that we've seen over the last few decades? Well, obviously, the Cold War burned hot in Southeast Asia. So, you know, there were you know, there was a huge amount of attention paid to, you know, countries like Laos, which which rate virtually no mention in American media whatsoever today, were, you know, the subject of cover stories in the New York Review of Books and the New York Times. I mean, the amount of attention given to the region, just because that's where the competition with, with um, the Soviet Union and China was unfolding, and obviously the intervention in Vietnam is a huge part of that, um, you know, made, made sure that there was a lot of attention on it. Since the end of the Cold War, American policy toward the region has entered a state of drift. Um, I think that the the Cold War alliances with the Philippines and Thailand have continued um, to, you know, I think in, in the case of Thailand, it's sort of the, the links that were established during the Cold War years, the very tight personal and political um, connections have tended to sort of wane as, as there's been a generational change. Um, uh, the Philippines has remained fairly strong um, with the exception of Duterte's administration. Um, but in general, I think that the U.S. has sort of been coasting a little bit. Um, I think that this is part and parcel of the broader um, phenomenon of the of the post-Cold War era, which is a sort of complacency, uh, uh, taking for granted that sort of the U.S., you know, U.S. primacy was sort of a, a, a foreordained or was, you know, was likely to, you know, persist for the foreseeable future and that history had rendered its verdict and that, um, uh, you know, that there was in some ways history was, was, was the winds of history were at, at the United States back. And so there was, there was a lot of, um, you know, it didn't, yeah, there, there was no, no real desire to develop and build on relationships in a strategic way in Southeast Asia. Now there were a lot of economic and strategic connections dating back to the cold war period. And there were, you know, there were significant steps taken during that period, the normalization of relations with Vietnam and, and Laos and Cambodia, those three countries being brought in from the cold, marked an important threshold in, in U.S. policy toward the region. Um, but I think there was a certain complacency ab- about the, you know, the, the way that the balance of power was changing in the region. In 2010, I interviewed the U.S. ambassador to Cambodia. This is when I was, um, when I was working there as a reporter, and I, I remember asking her about China and, you know, it's growing influence. And her view is very much like, you know, there's enough here for all of us. We're not in competition with China. That was in the early Obama administration. And I think, um, you know, within a decade, things had changed quite markedly in, in the rhetoric and, and the sort of expectations. Um, um, but, yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, the 9-11 and the war on terror has a lot to do with it as well. I mean, the fact that, that the U.S. strategic focus turned to the Middle East and Afghanistan really... You know, it led to, I think, a, a broad neglect, not just of Southeast Asia, but as, of the Asia Pacific as a whole. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and, and what engagement there was in Southeast Asia was often viewed through the lens of the global war on terror. So security partnerships with, um, you know, countries like Indonesia and the Philippines to crack down on Islamic radicalism in their regions. Um, we, you know, we see during this period one of the, the kind of the only sort of warm warming periods of relations relations between the United States and Cambodia was precisely, uh, you know, built around this idea of the global war on terror and Cambodia partnering with the United States to prevent the emergence of sort of a radical Islamic presence among the Cham Muslims of Cambodia. Um, and of course, one of the Bali bombers had 
had had spent a short time in Phnom Penh, mm-hmm. so that was that put Cambodia on the on the radar of of um, you know of Islamic international Islamic terrorist networks, and so that made the United States concerned. But that was you know a period in which you know the relations between the countries actually blossomed to some extent. Um, and, you know, even the pivot to Asia, is, you know, in that Obama announced, you know, there was never really much follow through um, on that. It was more rhetoric than reality. And then, of course, the TPP, which was the economic pillar of the pivot, was, you know, swept aside by Donald Trump on his first day in office. And so, uh, you know, I think that that's sort of, you know, there's also been a sense in which American domestic political dysfunction has um, undercut its ability to offer the sorts of trade deals and market access that Southeast Asian economies um, want from the United States. Hi, Sebastian. Thanks for, for coming on the show. Um, I'd be remiss not to ask about uh, Russia, Ukraine, and how these countries have reacted or are being expected to react uh, to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. You, you spoke a little bit about the autocracies versus democracies framing. And we hear often from the Biden administration that, you know, there is this international coalition uh, that has been set up to, you know, push back and challenge uh, the Putin regime. Um, But we also see that there are plenty of countries all over Southeast Asia, South Asia, Africa, who have not joined in, whether it be on the sanctions or Mm. um, condemning uh, Putin. Can you talk a little bit about how these Southeast Asia countries have reacted um, are they more in the in the Japanese camp, which Jap- Japan has been very much on the side of the of the U.S. led coalition, or maybe more so on the Indian camp, where they're um, you know they they're looking out more for 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 India's interests and in the whole affair. Sure. Well, the one country that's joined the Western sanctions campaign is Singapore. Um, uh, normally, Singapore complies. Historically, Singapore has complied with UN Security Council um, imposed sanctions. Um, this is one of two times in its history that it has it has imposed unilateral sanctions. And Singapore has had the, you know has always had a you know keen conscientiousness of its small size in a region of potentially hostile um, Malay majority states like Malaysians and, and Indonesia, and of course Singapore being an ethnic Chinese majority state. Uh, that, that's always created a sense of, you know, both of suspicion on the part of its Malay majority neighbours and also a sense of vulnerability on the part of Singapore. So the Singaporeans have been very, very um, forthright in in stating that the violation of national sovereignty is unacceptable um, and that this is a horror, you know, it sets a terrible precedent for small nations um, like Singapore. Um, uh, however, you know, the other 10 nations of Southeast Asia have... Um, been very reluctant to engage in this sort of um, uh, in this in this campaign. I think part in terms of sanctions, I think the region has always been skeptical of sanctions. Several nations of the region have been, you know, the subject of such sanctions in the past. And I think there's just a general view in the, the way that diplomacy works in the region that you know you have to talk things out. Um, but there's also you know a sense in which the region doesn't want to be sucked into a you know making it you know sort of making a choice between its relationships with Russia and its relationship with the United States and other members of the West. I mean, Russia is an important supplier of arms to um, several nations in the region. Vietnam, it's it's I think around eighty percent of Vietnam's um, arm imports are from Russia. Of course, there are deeper connections there going back to the Soviet period um, that are that's that are surprisingly you know robust. 
Um, uh, other nations in the region, you know, buy smaller amounts of, of goods from Russia, um, as of course does India, um, military goods that is. And, you know, and so there's certainly sort of a self-interested, you know, the, not wanting to burn that bridge and, and obviously, you know, military modernization of some Southeast Asian militaries is dependent on access to the relatively inexpensive Russian technology. Um, I think in the broader sense, though, there's been, you know, the these nations have perceived, like many nations in the global south, that the Ukraine-Russia war is essentially a European concern. I think that the Biden administration and the European Union have sought to portray the outcome of this war as having universal importance and relevance and that, you know, this is something that all of humanity should have a stake in. Um, uh, and again, this sort of universalism doesn't quite, it doesn't, doesn't resonate in the same way in Southeast Asia where the, the, the distinction between Russia, this sort of revisionist um, power and the kind of quote unquote rules-based international order is not quite as stark as some in Washington and Brussels would like to believe. Um, you know, I mean, nations like Indonesia, particularly the, the, the publics of nations like Indonesia were strongly opposed to American interventions in the Middle East, which of course, in the case of um, uh, both Iraq, uh, in the case of Iraq, you know, were, were open breaches of international law also. Um, so I think there's just a lot more ambivalence in the region about, you know, who the good guys are in this fight. Um, that said, I mean, you know, every nation in the region has, I think at this point, virtually every one has, you know, stated that they are opposed to any violations of sovereignty and that, you know, that they've sort of talked about the sanctity of the UN charter and so forth. But I think ultimately they see this as, as something on the other side of the world that doesn't directly concern them, except in so far as the economic aftershocks might begin to affect um, affect their, you know, their, their economies. And the Indonesian president, Joko Widodo, is actually in, I think he might be arriving in, in Russia and Ukraine just in the next few days. And one of the main agenda items is, is you know, in his talks with Zelensky and Putin will actually be how to free up shipments of wheat that have been sort of blocked up by the conflict. Because he's, you know, he's, he's most concerned about the domestic situation within Indonesia, which has already been rocked by rising prices of cooking oil, rising prices of fuel, um, and obviously, the you know he's most concerned about the potential impacts of this conflict on the global south. Yeah, and that's happening all over, whether it be the global south, there in Southeast Asia, Africa, the Middle East. It's uh, uh, these countries who have this dependency on um, you know grain, uh, cooking oil, uh, fertilizer. Um, it's pretty bad out there. Um, and mm. yeah, and they're having to make these uh, really complicated uh, choices. And uh, the United States, like you said, puts everything in these stark, are you with us or against us terms? And they're looking for their very, at their very survival, the, the, the fate of their survival. Um, what about Australia? You're in Australia. Um, they're an anchor, you know, um, ally of the United States and particularly in this sort of China containment strategy that the United States has been attempting to lead in the mm. region. Um, they got a lot of people upset uh, when the AUKUS alliance announced the, the, the new nuke submarines and other military collaboration between the UK, US and Australia. Where are they in this orbit, Australia? And are they putting pressure on these other countries to conform to a more anti-China hedge, if you will. Well, the, 
the Australians have tended to be pretty, I mean, at least in recent times, have, have tended to be pretty forthright in their support for the course of American policy. Mm-hmm. Um, there's sort of been, and this reflects, I think, a, a tendency in Australian foreign policy going back to the Second World War, which is this sort of fear of abandonment, to use the title of um, Alan Gingell's excellent, excellent survey of um, his recent book uh, uh, on modern um, Australian foreign policy, you know, this fear of abandonment uh, by, you know, distant allies like the United Kingdom and the United States. And so there's, there's, a, there's always been a certain perception that, you know, Australia needs to, that these relationships are actually absolutely core to Australia's um, uh, survival in, you know, and, and prosperity and security over the long term. Um, and I think that it's important to view, you know, that anti-China turn in Australia um, in that context um, you know, one problem, of course, is that, you know, we've yoked ourselves now to a, you know, a, you know, a nation, the United States, where, you know, whose domestic political outlook is highly uncertain with, you know, the potential of Donald Trump running again for president and the, the nativist, you know, very sort of um, chauvinistic Jacksonian elements in the Republican Party that could easily, um, you know, come to power again in 2024 or, or later on, you know, we, you know, the, the, I think that there's a certain risk now that Australia is sort of, um, you know, sort of yoked itself to, you know, uh, and could put itself in a difficult position if, if the United States takes, continues to take a more confrontational stance toward China. Um, in terms of Southeast Asia, the Australians have tended to tread fairly carefully on questions of human rights and democracy promotion. Um, you know, the, the Australian Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade has has come under criticism for not speaking out more about these things from human rights groups. I think they've been very pragmatic in how they deal with the region. Um, you know, dwelling close to Southeast Asia, I think there's a fairly good understanding of, of how the, func- the region functions, even though our, uh, you know, the, our expertise in the region is, is, starting, is starting to um, uh, fade a little bit due to, you know, education, funding cuts to, you know, Asian language programs and so forth. Um, I think, you know, Australia has been fairly, if it has pushed Southeast Asian nations to take a stronger line on the Ukraine issue, it has been fairly subtle in how it's gone about that. Um, and it's certainly not, you know, you know, Australia's, you know, for instance, its use of sanctions against Myanmar have been very minimal it, it, since the Myanmar coup of last year. Um, that's another nation that's seen, you know, um, a wall of sanctions erected against it um, by the United States, European Union, the UK, Canada, and so forth. The Australians have been fairly careful about that, um, uh, cautious in, in how they approach that issue and been criticised for it, of course. Um, but they've been quite understanding, I think, um, of the Southeast Asian position on the Ukraine war. And um, that's at least my guess. I'm not, a, I'm not an expert on Australian foreign policy, but that seems to be the sort of approach. They've taken a much more, um, yeah, a much more moderate line on that. There's not the sort of with us or against us rhetoric that you see emanating from Brussels and Washington at the moment. When speaking of Myanmar, uh, Myanmar has been cited as one of the the cases where that, that prove the the relative uh, weakness of broad sanctions to achieve policy goals. Uh, uh, Lee Jones in his book uh, Societies Under Siege uses that as a, a, a case uh, study of how sanctions don't really achieve what uh, what the, the senders of those sanctions want to achieve. Uh, what what do you think that the prospects are of uh, pressuring the junta to to step down or to relinquish power or to bring back uh, civilian government in in the let's say in the next ten years. Well, frankly, not very good. I think um, the military, Myanmar's military, is incredibly cloistered, inward looking. It doesn't really care about what the rest of the world thinks. 
Um, it, you know, and it's shown, you know, the, the previous junta that ruled before 2011 showed that it was willing to weather long periods of internal, international isolation in order to safeguard the kind of goals that it claims it is pursuing, you know, the goals of, you know, holding the union together and defeating the various insurgencies that seek to sort of fracture the union. Um, and so, you know, I frankly think that, um, you know, that the the sanctions will, you know, probably matter around the edges. Uh, they'll make it more difficult for the military. But um, alone, they will not um, succeed in, in bringing it down. I the, the one uncertainty, of course, is that there is a large resistance, an armed resistance now to the military government that is gaining ground. Now, it's hard to know exactly how successful they're being because there's a lot of, similar with the Ukraine war, there's a lot of people who want them to succeed. And so what you see in, in sort of the social media churn is, is, is tends to, to err on the side of the positive. Um, but, you know, there are indications that the Myanmar military is stretched incredibly thinly um, by these new civilian militias that have emerged in addition to the ethnic armed groups that have been fighting for independence and autonomy from the central state for decades. Um, so sanctions could matter. They could weigh into the equation, but alone, you know, I think that the sanctions are, are kind of a way of Western nations doing something and being seen to do something in reaction to this horrific turn of events in Myanmar. Um, and of course, you know, those sanctions again have not been joined even by the Japanese in this case, um, but not nor by the Indians, nor by any nation in ASEAN and Southeast Asia, um, nor, of course, the Chinese. And so that, you know, is another reason why, you know, the sanctions are relatively, um, well, the effect of the sanctions will be relatively limited um, uh, in terms of the regime's survival. And when finally uh, turning to Cambodia, uh, you wrote recently about the new agreement between Cambodia and China related to the modernization of Rim Naval Base uh, in, in Cambodia. Uh, and, and China hawks have been quick to seize on this uh, as proof that China is establishing a foothold in the country and possibly even establishing a permanent base of their own. Uh, uh, you wrote recently uh, about it and said little of the overheated Western commentary about possible Chinese military presence in Cambodia recognizes the extent to which this is the logical and direct outgrowth of several decades of misplaced U.S. policy toward the country. Uh, what is the Biden administration still getting wrong here, and what should it do to improve relations with Cambodia in the next few years? I think it's important to understand the extent to which the early post-Cold War has really set the tone for not just American policy toward Cambodia, but Western policy more generally. I mean, Cambodia, after the end of the Cold War, was the subject of a massive multinational United Nations peacekeeping effort, which attempted to bring the country's civil war to an end and put the country, establish a democratic multi-party system. Um, and that effort, so the UN was in Cambodia in 1992 and 1993, was, you know, really incarnated the sense of optimism and triumph, liberal triumph that characterized the post-Cold War era. This sort of end of history um, idea um, was locked in, in Cambodia as if in amber, you know, from that period. And so Western policy toward the country has always been based around the idea of Cambodia as sort of this democracy building mission, uh, a project, a liberal internet ideological project. And, um, you know, and because the country is relatively small and was perceived in Washington and other capitals as strategically marginal, 
this was a place where American policymakers felt like, okay, we can stand on our principles here. We're not going to lose anything by alienating the government of Cambodia. So this is a place where we can, you know, we can make our commitment toward democracy and human rights. We can stand on that commitment and not have it sullied by other strategic considerations. Now, it's similar to Myanmar, actually, during that period, um, uh, interestingly. But, um, of course, for the government of Cambodia that was the incumbent government, which had ruled through the 80s, you know, obviously this, things looked very different. And for Prime Minister Hun Sen, who came to power in 1985 and remains in power today, um, you know, the American record in Cambodia is a lot more messy. And so for the United States to start, you know, lecturing the Cambodian government about accountability and, and human rights, you know, you know, has always seemed to him like, you know, grossly hypocritical. And, and I don't want to get too far into it, but of course we have, you know, Hun Sen probably personally experienced the carpet bombing of Eastern Cambodia during the Vietnam War. He, he was he was born in Eastern Cambodia in 1952 and was a teenager at the time and then joined the resistance against the US-supported government in Phnom Penh in the early 70s, um, potentially before as well. Um, it's a bit unclear. Uh, and then he, you know, after the liberation Vietnam invaded Cambodia and overthrew the, the murderous Khmer Rouge regime in 1979, which was responsible for, you know, an estimated 1.7 million deaths in Cambodia. Um, uh, Hun Sen was part of the sort of Cambodian rebel force that, that, that accompanied the Vietnamese in, and he was installed. Um, this force was installed as the new Cambodian government in 79, but instead of being sort of thanked for this liberation, the, you know, this, Cambodian government um, and its Vietnamese and Soviet backers were subject to a, you know, a harsh international Western and Chinese embargo. Um, so, you know, Hun Sen was a member of a government that was treated like a pariah state through the 1980s by the United States. Um, and, you know, which effectively kept the country from reconstructing itself after the nightmare of the Khmer Rouge. And so all of a sudden in 1991, there's this massive sea change in the West where all of a sudden we're committed to democracy and that, um, you know, the end of history has arrived. But in Cambodia, there was, you know, um, things looked very different. Um, the civil war of the 1980s, which was supported by the Chinese and the Americans, three resistance factions um, that were fighting against Hun Sen's government um, from the Thai border, including the remnants of the Khmer Rouge. Um, you know, all of those parties, um, two of them converted themselves into political parties to run in the new democratic system that was created by the UN. And so you had basically Cambodia's civil war continue into new into a new context, uh, into a political context. The reason that's important, of course, is that when the United States talked about, and other Western powers talked about democracy promotion and encouraging democratization in Cambodia, Hun Sen's domestic enemies, who had also been his wartime enemies in the 1980s, um, simply, you know, learned to latch onto this commitment in order to advance their own political interests. And so democracy promotion from the beginning has been, um, has been sort of uh, viewed as a you know, a project to get the CPP out of power. It, it, it's been viewed as sort of a proxy for a regime change operation by the Cambodian opposition and and Western powers that have always been, you know, viewed Hun Sen's government with a certain degree of distaste. And so when the Chinese come along, all of a sudden Hun Sen has an international patron that is willing to give him money and not lecture him about good governance and human rights. And so all of the Western aid conditionalities that were put in place in the early 1990s, the government starts to walk away from those I think the main mistake of American policy was to to view Cambodia through the lens of 1991, um, to see it as a special case detached from the broader story of the changing balance of power in Asia. And so, you know, around, you know, the, the middle of the 2010s, 
I think a whole lot of policymakers in Washington wake up to the fact that Cambodia has has become very, very close to China and start panicking about it. But by that point, you know, there had been years and years of, you know, American lecturing about democracy. There is a, a debt from the 1970s that the U.S., insists that Cambodia must pay, um, a debt that was contracted by a previous government and that um, Prime Minister Hun Sen views as essentially a blood debt, given that it was used essentially, you know, to fund various aspects of the civil war that was then raging in Cambodia. Uh, and so, you know, and, and, and I think one another important factor is that Hun Sen, given his longevity, um, you know, this makes the history of American interventions in Cambodia more relevant than they might otherwise be, because Hun Sen personally remembers all of these things and the resentments uh, that the U.S. has never fully accepted him as a legitimate leader have built up and built up. And so the Chinese have offered him exactly what he wants, um, support, um, financial support, which can grease the gears of patronage domestically, support to build infrastructure, which he can present to the Cambodian people as signs of progress, Um and they 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 basically respect his the way that he runs the country. They don't try to you know sort of um, uh, lecture him about the particular governance model that he's adopted. Um, a very corrupt governance model, it should be added. Um, the American criticisms on this score are entirely correct. It's just a question of how to balance that with a more strategic approach toward the country. Um, and so I fear now we've we've kind of. The U.S. is sort of pinwheeled from benign neglect of Cambodia to sort of this hysteria about the potential establishment of a Chinese base without recognizing that, you know, this is a country that has basically been ignored in Washington since the early 1990s. Right. And we're seeing that with, with some other countries as well. Uh, the U.S. suddenly discovering that they have a, a keen interest in the South Pacific, too, after ignoring it for many decades as well. Uh, only to discover that they've uh, missed out on quite a lot in the meantime. Uh, I'm afraid we're out of time, but I want to thank you very much for coming on. Uh, Sebastian Strangio, uh, author of In the Dragon's Shadow, uh, and uh, uh, Cambodia from Pol Pot to Hun Sen and beyond. Uh, thanks very much. Thanks for having me. Thank you again for tuning into today's episode. If you enjoy and value real conversations such as these, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcaster of choice. Right now, Crashing the War Party can be found on Stitcher, TuneIn, and at Substack at crashingthewarparty.substack.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Special thanks to our editor, Remzo W. Martinez, the Crashing the War Party team, and to you, our listeners. Let's create a more peaceful world, one episode at a time.